0: Well, that's Joe Apt. He's a student at the Masters University. He's becoming a member of our church next week, and that brother can play. Thanks for leading us this morning in worship. Jesus paid it all. I love that. Thank you so much for leading us this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to John, the Gospel of John. We're finally hitting the kind of hallmark verse of the prologue as we've been looking at the first 18 verses of the introduction of the Gospel of John. And so today is uh, verse 14 where we're going to look, about, look at how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm feeling a little bit like flesh today. I've played a lot of sports at man camp, and I am hurting. My back hurts. My legs hurt. I mean, I thought I was in good shape. but Those guys wore me out yesterday, so I'm, I'm in the flesh today. But today, we're going to talk about Jesus, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. This is going to be a part one of two sermons on just verse 14. I could have loaded it all in here, but I said, you know what? I'm going to take my time. We're going to enjoy this phenomenon. I only get to preach it once, right? In my whole life, I only get to preach verse 14 one time. So I'm going to take my time with it, all right? Let's enjoy this truth together. The Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. So pray with me, if you will. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at the Word today, knowing that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as we consider today that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, as we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God, as we look at this one verse today, I pray that You would open up our minds, that You would illuminate our hearts, that You would allow us to see Christ in all of His glory as perfect God, as sinless man, as our Savior. Who dwelt among us, may we behold his glory today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I believe that you would agree with me that all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are all at play in the Incarnation. All three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are involved in a Trinitarian way with the Word becoming flesh. And that cannot be denied. In fact, it's Hebrews, chapter 10, verse five, that we learn how the Father prepared a body for the son. Listen to the author of Hebrews, 10:5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, "Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me." That's what the Son said to the Father, that you prepared a body for me. The Father was involved in the incarnation. In fact, according to Puritan Thomas Brooks, the Father, quote, ordained, formed, made fit and able Christ's human nature to undergo, suffer, and fulfill that for which he was sent into the world. It was the Father that was involved in the incarnation. Romans 8.3 says it this way, God sent his own Son in the likeness of, of sinful flesh. We're talking about how the Word became flesh. Jesus became a man, right? So God prepared a sinless body for Christ, and He fitted Him with the required gifts and graces to perform the work of mediator. After all, the Son needed a body in order to be able to offer His body As a ransom for many, the Son needed a body in order to be the first prototype of the resurrection so you and I could be resurrected into our glorified bodies one day. The Son needed a body, it was given to him by the Father. It was the Father who was responsible as the master architect for designing and preparing that body that Christ would assume. And then it was also the Holy Spirit that was involved in the incarnation, not just the Father alone working independently, but the Holy Spirit was at work like the master builder. It was the Holy Spirit that was responsible for the actual formation of the human nature of Christ in the womb of Mary. You know this already from Luke 1:35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will, call, will be called holy, the Son of God. It was the Holy Spirit that impregnated Mary. It was the Holy Spirit that caused the conception of the Son of God. It was the Holy Spirit that bore the responsibility for both the physical and the spiritual life of Christ. It's what Matthew writes about in one eighteen when he says, Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, so before they had ever been together physically, she was found to be with child from who? From the Holy Spirit. The Father's involved in the incarnation. The Holy Spirit is involved in the incarnation. The angel also appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear, do, uh, do not fear. To take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So we see the Father's involvement in the incarnation. We see the Holy Spirit's involvement in the incarnation. But what about the Son's involvement? What was his involvement in the incarnation? I would say that the actual decision to become a human nature belonged to the Son. All that Jesus did for his people needed to be voluntarily done and not forced. This included the decision to make into union with himself a true human nature in body and soul. I'm talking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit covenanted together in eternity past to provide redemption for mankind, which they would collectively create. Each part of the Godhead volunteered their part of this sovereign plan. It was the Father who chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. It was the Son who voluntarily came to earth in the form of a man and was killed and raised from the dead to accomplish our salvation. It was the Holy Spirit who has sealed us with a guarantee of our entrance into heaven in the future. Triune God involved in the incarnation. Listen to this quote by Puritan Stephen Sharnock. He writes this, quote, What a wonder that two natures, infinitely distant, should be more intimately united than anything in the world. The nature of God and the nature of man, completely different, yet united in Christ. He goes on to say that that same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in deity, and an inexpressible sorrow in humanity. That God upon the throne should be an infant in a cradle, the thundering Creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. What we're talking about this morning is the incarnation of Christ, that the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And so as we look just at this first part of verse 14 this morning, I want to give you three headings today as we dive into this verse. And may our study of the incarnation bring you new life and new hope today to see how the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you're here today and you don't need and you don't know Christ, this message is for you, that you would see Christ for who he is. If you're here today and your marriage is struggling, this message is for you. For without focusing on the real person of Christ, your marriage will never be fulfilled or satisfied. You can never be reconciled as a husband and wife if you don't first come to Christ. If you're here today and you're running from God and you're distant from Him, you need to hear this morning about the incarnation to awaken your spirit to the truth that the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. And so three headings this morning that we'll look at. The first is the incarnation of the Word excuse me, the word became flesh. God became a man. The word flesh there, the word sarks referring specifically to the human body. And so what we see here in this first part of the verse 14 is simply this, A, in your outline. We're seeing here the union of two natures in one person. The union of two natures in one person. Here we are talking about how the infinite became finite. The invisible became tangible. The transcendent became touchable. That which was far off is now drawn near. That which was beyond the reach of the human mind now reveals himself as a human. And what's so interesting about the incarnation is this. When God became a man, he became something that he was not previously. Do you hear me? When God became a man at the incarnation for the first time in history, God became something that he was not previously. Oh, there have been many pre-incarnate appearances of Christ throughout the Old Testament. We could survey Genesis 16, how the angel of the Lord, which I believe was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, appeared to Hagar We could talk about Exodus 3, how the angel of the Lord that I believe was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ appeared to Moses in the flaming bush that wasn't consumed. We could talk about how in Joshua 5, how the commander of the army of the Lord, who I believe was Christ, appeared to Joshua and told him how to conquer Jericho. We could talk about Judges 2, how the angel of the Lord promised Israel that he would keep his covenant in driving their enemies away. We could talk about Judges 6. How the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon to tell him how he would defeat the Midianites. We could look at Judges 13, how the angel of the Lord appeared to a barren woman to tell her that she would have a child. We could talk about Daniel 3, the appearance of the fourth man in the fiery furnace was like a son of the gods. We could talk about Daniel 10, the man clothed in linen, with a belt of gold, who had a face with lightning and eyes flaming like torches. We could talk about Zechariah 1, how the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and appeared to Zechariah and talked about how Jerusalem would be judged because of their unbelief. Oh, there are more pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, but none of these incredible pre-incarnate appearances of Christ which happened prior to the incarnation, were the same thing as the Word becoming flesh. You see, those were just temporary glimpses of the angel of the Lord, of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who would show up for a moment and then vanish. But now we have Him coming to earth where He actually became flesh and He chose to dwell among us. You see, when the Word became flesh, God the Son for the first time, took on a new nature. He took on the nature of a man. This is unthinkable. How could God become a man? And yet He does so, so that He could relate to us, and so that He could save us, that we would be His. It's unthinkable that God would become a man but he did so so that he could redeem man by dying for you in your place, so that he could become your substitute. God chose from eternity past to be a man. Our divine Savior took upon him a human nature. He became a real man, yet a sinless, perfect man. And so how appropriate it is for the author of Hebrews to write in Hebrews 7:26, for it." was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted among the heavens. It's a reference to Christ. He's our priest. He's unstained, even though he's a man. Turn with me, if you will, to First Timothy chapter 3. Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. We're talking about, again, the union of two natures in the person of Christ. It's one of the great mysteries of our faith. It's like the Trinity. We can't fully understand it, yet we know we serve a triune God. The hypostatic union, fully God, fully man. We can't understand it. It's a mystery. And yet it's revealed to us in Scripture in 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul says it this way. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations... Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's a reference to Christ. It's a mystery, this incredible godliness, the fact that Jesus manifested himself in the flesh. God became a man. And while Jesus is manifested, he reveals himself in the flesh, we need to understand, secondly, that he never stopped being God. While he becomes a, a full-blown man, he never stopped being God god in fact that's what we've been talking about here in the prologue again in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he's god he he was in the beginning with god all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that has been made we see that in the beginning he was with god face to face the father and the son and yet the son is god the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. It's John 10, verse 30, that says, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He never stopped being God, even as a man. He never emptied himself of his divine attributes. He never stopped being God. John 17:22 in his high priestly prayer, he prays the glory that you have given me. I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. And so throughout his time on earth, he continues to claim to be God and at the same time to be a man. This is truly amazing that he never stops, cease being God. But we could also say in your next blank that the word never ceased being man. He never ceased being a man. In fact, from that moment in history that he was incarnated, Jesus remains in a body for all eternity. Every time he's referenced from here going forward He's in a glorified body that he can be seen with his own flesh. Jesus is a real man. He was born. He grew. He got tired. He got hungry and thirsty. Jesus experienced physical exhaustion. He experienced pain and agony. He sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had emotions. He had a will. He was fully man. In fact, if you look at Luke 2, Luke 2:52 2, shows us about these two natures of the Godhead. The only way this could be explained is understanding that Jesus has two natures, the nature of God and the nature of man, because Luke 2, says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. How in the world could Jesus increase in wisdom? If he's already God, how does he need to know anything else or increase in his wisdom or in his favor or in stature? The only way that verse and others like it could be understood is to understand the dual nature of Christ. Not, Not the dual nature, I should say, the two natures of Christ, right? Fully God, fully man, as the second person of the Trinity, and as fully man, he grew in wisdom. He had to learn the scriptures and read them like you and I. He had to learn how to obey his mom and dad, like you and I. He learned and walked in obedience, never sinned, but at the same time, he's growing in wisdom and in stature. And as he's growing in wisdom and in stature, he receives more and more favor from the Father. Not in his Godward nature, but in his human nature. He receives more and more favor with the Father, as a man. And so again, we must here understand that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He has two natures, the nature of God and the nature of man. And the only difference in the nature of his manhood and the nature of our manhood is the fact that he didn't have a sinful nature. You and I, our our nature is corrupt. Our nature is, we're born in iniquity. Our nature is bent towards sin. And while he had a full-blown human nature, he did have a full-blown sinless nature as the incarnation takes place. Now let me show you, if I can, the importance of the incarnation as far as what it accomplished. It's your next blank. What the incarnation accomplished. This union of the two natures in the person of Christ was necessary in order for him to be fit to serve in the office of mediator. And three... Great ends were accomplished by God becoming incarnate, by the Word being made flesh. Number one, it was now possible for the Word to die. It was now possible for the Word to die. Prior to the incarnation, in the pre incarnate appearances of Christ, there's no hint of Him being able to die. When He presents Himself as the army, as the, the commander of the army of the Lord, or as the angel of the Lord, We we get the sense that he's invincible. And yet when he comes to earth as a man, for the first time in our life, we begin to realize, oh, he could die. Like he could be killed. Like he did die. Like this was prophesied about in Genesis 3.15, what we call the uh, proto-angelion, right? The idea of the first um, prophecy of the gospel, right? The, The whole idea that Satan bruised his heel But Christ will crush his head. And the whole idea of Satan bruising his heel is the idea of the crucifixion. The idea that Christ will die. It's now possible. The Word of God, who's been around forever in his human nature, has the ability to go through a real death like you and like me. And we see that take place on the cross. And so it's necessary for him to be incarnated so that for the first time in his life, God could die in the person of Christ Number two, the second thing that the Incarnation accomplishes is it is now possible for the Word to experience life as a human. God knew about humanity. He created humanity. He understands our heart. He had never personally experienced what it's like to be a human until He became one. This is a brand new experience for God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 The writer says it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so for the first time in our life, we can say God knows. Before the incarnation, you could say, Well, God doesn't really understand what I'm going through. I mean, He's God. And and I'm a human, and I'm struggling. But after the incarnation... We can't say that anymore. In fact, we would be rightly shepherded to believe the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to now say that our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, can and he does sympathize with our weaknesses. That means no matter what you're going through in your life, God knows Christ has experienced. There's nothing you can face as a human that he hasn't already faced as a human. He sympathizes because he has experienced temptation. He has experienced ridicule. He has been persecuted. And he has experienced something that we have never experienced. Those of us in this room, he's experienced death. And you're still alive. Oh, and by the way, he's also experienced separation from the Father. Which as a Christian, you will never experience. You will never be abandoned. He will never leave you. And yet Christ was abandoned by his Father. On the cross. So he's experienced everything you have. And then some. Which means when you're struggling. This week in your marriage. And you're struggling with raising your kids. And you're struggling with that temptation to be angry. And you're struggling with that. Desire to be materialistic. And you're struggling with the lust of the flesh. And the lust of the eyes. And the boastful pride of life. Don't think you're alone. Christ knows. Call out to him. And understand that as fully God and fully man, he sympathizes with you. He's there with you in the midst of that trial. Don't you dare say God doesn't understand. Don't ever say he doesn't know what I'm going through. He knows and he cares and he's with you and he wants to help you and he has beautiful grace to give you in your time of need. It is sufficient for your trouble this week. And so, For the first time, the Word experienced life as a human. Number three, the third thing the Incarnation accomplished was this. It was now possible for mankind to have a perfect example. Oh, we have many examples in the Old Testament. We could go to Abraham and David and Joseph and so many of of the prophets, Jeremiah. I mean, many examples. Even in the New Testament, Paul says, follow me. But notice he says, as I follow Christ. The ultimate example for us to follow is always Christ. We can be encouraged by looking at a godly man or a godly woman, but you are transformed by looking at the person of Christ. Not only did he accomplish salvation through his death, but he also served as that perfect example. In fact, look at 1 Peter 2:21. 1 Peter 2:21 says this directly, "For to this you have been called, In other words, part of your life is about following this, for this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus has already gone before you. Not only did he accomplish redemption through the sacrifice and the atonement of his blood, but he also serves as an example for you to watch, to follow, to learn from, to emulate, to walk in his steps. To walk right behind him. It's 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So there's no temptation or struggle in your life that in that very moment when you're struggling with that same sin, whether it's something that you're struggling with for the first time or that habitual sin, that besetting sin, look to Christ and know that he's been there and yet he has overcome as the God-man that we might draw great strength following His example to follow. Don't excuse a character flaw just because every other example in the Bible has a character flaw. Look to Christ. Imitate Christ. Be consumed with Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. Don't look to another man or a woman. Ultimately, look to Christ. Without the Word becoming flesh, none of this would be possible. Without Jesus walking among us, none of this could happen. The Word became flesh so that He could die in our place, experience our struggles, and show us the way to heaven. Aren't you glad this morning that the Word became flesh? How blessed we are to see through His Word what this means. As we look at the second part, not only did He become flesh, but He desired to dwell among us, right? The dwelling of the Word. We've seen the incarnation of the Word, the dwelling of the Word. There in that second clause, it just simply says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. The word dwelt means to live. It means to settle. It means to take up a residence. It's The idea, you remember again, in the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ, he didn't really dwell with us. He was like here, and then he's gone. And you're like, whoa, 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 what was that? Oh yeah, that was Christ. He was here and he was gone, but now he's like, no, no, I'm going to hang out. I'm here to live. I'm here to pitch my tent. The word in the Old Testament, it was translated, I'm here to tabernacle. I'm I'm here to tabernacle with you. I'm going to take up my home right here. I'm here. I mean, he's only here 33 years, so he's not here forever, but he's here for a a substantial amount of time. The idea of Jesus tabernacling among us ought to immediately bring up some of the Old Testament teaching of God residing in the tabernacle between the time when the, the Israelites Escaped Egypt by the power of God, and before they came into the promised land, you remember they spent 40 years in the wilderness, and it was in that time that the tabernacle was formed. This is before the, the, the more permanent structure of the temple was built by Solomon in Jerusalem, but during that time of their pilgrimage through the wilderness, God chose to reside in the tabernacle. This was called sometimes the tent of meeting. This is where the glory cloud would go out and lead Israel by day and a pillar of fire by night. This is where God's throne was on the mercy seat, on the wings of the cherubim outstretched over the Ark of the Covenant. Inside that Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, the rod of Aaron and some manna. This is the presence of God in the tabernacle. And like so many pictures given in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a foreshadowing of a more significant dwelling of God on earth. The tabernacle foreshadows Christ. God's presence in the Old Testament in the tabernacle foreshadows Christ, our tabernacle, in the New Testament. The tabernacle points us to Christ when Christ came and dwelt among us. We no longer need a tabernacle. We no longer need a temple. We just need Jesus. We don't need to come to His house. We need Him to come into our hearts. We don't need to to, to come and reach out to him through our effort. He comes to us through the cross. We no longer need to cleanse ourselves ceremonially to come into his presence. No, he washes us and makes us whiter than snow. We no longer need to follow the cloud. We need to follow the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus pitched his tent on earth for 33 years. The tabernacle had a typical significance. It foreshadowed the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And almost everything about the tabernacle faintly hints at Jesus coming to earth and taking up his residence as God in the flesh. In fact, we've got to just look at it. Let me give you eight pictures of how the tabernacle foreshadows Christ's presence. And I took this from A.W. Pink's commentary on John because I was just caught up. In studying that this week. And so I want to share it with you. Let me give you eight ways the tabernacle points us to Jesus. Number one. The tabernacle was for use in the wilderness. It was for use in the wilderness. As we've already said. The tabernacle was merely a tent. It was a temporary convenience. Something that was suited to be moved about from place to place in the wilderness. But during Israel's pilgrimage to the Promised Land, the tabernacle was God's appointed provision for them. And I would say to you, the wilderness strikingly foreshadowed the conditions that the eternal Word would face as He tabernacled among men at His first advent. He moved around from place to place. He was here in the flesh, fully God, fully man. But he still had to move around from place to place while he was here. The wilderness home of the tabernacle unmistakably foreshadowed the manger cradle, the Nazarite carpenter's bench, the nowhere for the Son of Man to lay his head, the borrowed tomb for his burial. Just moving around temporarily for time, 33 years, as the tabernacle did that in the wilderness amongst hostility, so did Christ's tabernacle in this earth amongst those that he came to his own, but his own received him not. The second picture we see of the tabernacle in Christ would be this, the tabernacle was humble, simple, and unattractive. Not like the temple plated with gold, shining from a distance as you would see the, the temple built by Solomon. This was a plain structure, temporary structure. Unlike, again, the costly and magnificent temple, there was nothing in the externals of the tabernacle to please the naked eye. There was nothing there but a bunch of plain boards and animal skin. So it was with the incarnation. The divine majesty of our Lord was hidden beneath a veil of flesh. He came unattended by any massive entourage To the unbelieving gaze of Israel, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Jesus came to his own and they rejected him. And when their unanointed eyes saw him, no beauty that they should desire him. Jesus came as a common man to commoners. There was nothing beautiful about it unless your eyes were open to see that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy that God would become a man and dwell among us. A third thing that we learn from the tabernacle is this. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place. It was God's dwelling place. It was there in the midst of Israel's camp that God took up his home. There between the cherubim upon the mercy seat that he made his throne. In the Holy of Holies, he manifested his presence by means of the Shekinah glory. And during 33 years that the word tabernacled among men... God had his dwelling place in the person of Christ. The Holy of Holies received its fulfillment in the person of Christ. Just as the Shekinah dwelt between the two cherubim, so on the Mount of Transfiguration the glory of the God-man flashed forth from between two men, Moses and Elijah. The tabernacle foreshadows the fact that God's dwelling place is now in the person of Christ. The next one, the fourth thing that we can learn about the tabernacle is this. The tabernacle was where God met with men. It's where God met with men. The tabernacle was often termed the tent of meeting. If an Israelite desired to draw near to Jehovah, he had to come to the door of the tabernacle. And when giving instructions, Moses concerning the making of the tabernacle and its furniture said this in Exodus 25 21 and 22, God says this to Moses. He says, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God spoke at the tabernacle. God speaks to us in Christ. He is the Word who became flesh. It's by the words of Christ now that we understand that Christ is the meeting place between God and man. No man can come to the Father but by Christ. No man can see the Father unless he first comes to Christ. No man can meet with the Father unless he first meets with Christ. The Bible says it this way in First Timothy two, five, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. If you want to see the Father, if you want to know God, you have to first know Christ. The fifth thing that we learn about the tabernacle is that the tabernacle was at the center of Israel's camp in the Old Testament. It was the immediate vicinity of the tabernacle where the Levites dwelt. The Bible says that the Levites shall encamp around the tabernacle, Numbers one fifty. In Numbers 2.17, we read, Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. And as they camp, so shall they set out, each in position, standard by standard. The Levites would camp around the tabernacle. The tabernacle was at the center of all the Israelite culture. It was the hub. And they just wanted to be near it. To camp out there was a privilege for the Levite priests in Numbers 11, 24 and 25. So Moses went out and told the people the words of God. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. This all happened at the tabernacle. This is where spiritual life was. The tabernacle was the great gathering center. As such, it was a beautiful foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our great Gathering center. We meet together to experience true fellowship in Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of our elder board. Christ ought to be the head of your heart. He ought to be the center of your home. Everything that you do ought to center around the person of Christ. He's at the center of our gathering. That's why we come together to worship Christ, our risen Savior. I don't want to be on the outside. I don't want to be on the fringes. I want to be there in the middle, right in the center where Christ is. A sixth thing that we learn about the tabernacle is that the tabernacle was the place where the law was preserved. The first of two tables of stone in which God had inscribed the Ten Commandments were broken. If you remember when Moses came down the first time from Mount Sinai, they had made a golden calf and he threw the tablets of stone and they shattered. And so God gave him a second Decalogue, the second law. I mean, it's the same law, but it written for the second time on those stones, and it was these that were kept in the tabernacle. They were kept there in the Ark of the Covenant. It was only there within the Holy of Holies that the tablets of the law were preserved intact. And then listen to this prophecy written of Christ. Now that we see the importance of the law being preserved, Christ says, or this prophecy about Christ in Psalm Forty Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is written in my heart. And so we're seeing here that though his perfect, through his perfect life, Jesus preserved in thought, word, and deed the divine decalogue, honoring and magnifying God's law. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Do not think, Matthew 5, 17, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So just as the law was preserved in the tabernacle, so is the law of God, namely the new covenant, the law of Christ, is preserved in Christ. He always kept the law perfectly, by the way. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He made his pilgrimages to the temple. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was a law keeper, but he also came to set up a new law. And the old covenant reached its expiration date in Christ. And now he sets up on our hearts. He writes his law, the law of Christ on our heart. And that all comes through Christ, the superior tabernacle, the superior dwelling, the person of Christ. A seventh thing that we learn about the tabernacle is that the tabernacle was the place where sacrifice was made. In its outer court stood the brazen altar to which the animals were brought. And where they were slain was there at the altar, there in the tabernacle area. There it was that blood was shed and atonement was made for sin. And so it is with the Lord Jesus. He fulfilled in His own body the typical significance of the brazen altar As of every piece of the tabernacle furniture, the body in which He tabernacled on earth was nailed to a tree. The cross was the altar upon which God's Lamb was slain, where His precious blood was shed, and where complete atonement for sin was made. It happened not in the tabernacle, it happened in the body of Christ. The tabernacle points us to Jesus, the ultimate place where the law was preserved where the sacrifice was made and then eighth the eighth thing we can learn from the tabernacle is it was the place of worship it was the place of worship to the tabernacle the pious israelites brought their offerings to the tabernacle the israelite turned when he desired to worship God for from its door the voice of the Lord was heard within its courts the priests ministered in their sacred service and so do we worship Christ it is by him That we are to offer unto God a sacrifice of praise. It is unto Him that we give our bodies as a living sacrifice, following His example. As we want to worship Christ, Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. In Him and by Him alone That we come to the Father to worship Him. It is through Him that we have access to the throne of grace. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. And so I must ask you this morning, do you see the beauty of the tabernacle? Do you see the beauty of the tabernacle? Do you see the superior beauty of Christ? Do you see the significance of the tabernacle? Do you see the superior significance of Christ? Do you see the centrality of the tabernacle under the old covenant? Do you see the centrality of Christ under the new covenant? Jesus says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many the forgiveness of sins. He wants you to see him for who he is. Have you been forgiven today of your sin? Has that blood of Christ that was shed for you atoned for your sins? Are you coming to an earthly tent this morning or are you coming to a heavenly one? Are you coming to meet with God today through your own work or your own effort or through Christ's? Are you here to worship a type or are you here to worship the triumphant savior who is the greater tabernacle, who is the great son of God? who is the place where you meet God today, here and now. You come to the tent of meeting of Christ and be born again. Here on this day, look no further, for he is here in our very midst. And let's look on to our last heading this morning, number three, the glory of the word. The glory of the word. There again in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Many people ask, what is the glory of Christ that we see? How are we to understand this glory? And it's been suggested in a number of systematic theologies that you could consider glory in maybe four different categories. Let me give them to you. The first is this. We beheld his essential glory. We beheld his essential glory. Essential glory is Christ's divine perfections. Here we are talking about the divine attributes of Christ. Eternity itself will be too short to exhaust this theme. The glories of our Lord are infinite, for in him the fullness of deity dwells. No subject ought to be dearer to the heart of the believer than the attributes of Christ. And so John is writing here, We beheld his glory, the essential glory which signifies his supreme excellency, his personal perfections. From the beginning to the end of his earthly life and ministry, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ was plainly evidenced. His supernatural birth, his personal excellencies, his matchless teaching, his wondrous miracles, his death and resurrection, all proclaimed him as the Son of God. And so after Jesus turned the water into wine, chapter 2, turn over to chapter 2, we see maybe a description of his essential glory. It's just being who he is. John 2.11, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. In other words, Jesus is God. Jesus created wine out of water. And now his disciples see his essential glory because they understand Jesus is God better than ever here in John 2.11. That essential glory was also the glory surrounding Jesus' birth and the shepherds who saw the angels by night in Luke 2, 8 and 9. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Again, we would describe this maybe as essential glory, just Christ being who he is. Maybe one more picture of His essential glory would be the ascension in Acts 1-9. And when He had said these things, they were looking on, and He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. I don't think that was a cumulus cloud. I think that's the glory cloud of the essential glory of God that Christ goes up to be with His Father. That's His essential glory, Christ being God, His divine attributes. God, very God. And not only is there Christ's essential glory, but there is also Christ's official glory as well. We beheld his official glory. His official glory is most clearly seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. We looked at this a little bit last week. This is when his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. This is when his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. This is when the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became dazzling white. This is officially, physically, the glory of Christ that we see. It's exactly what Peter's talking about in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Peter writes, "...for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you by the power of the coming of our coming Lord Jesus Christ." But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory, that's official glory, when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So his official glory is seen as he's officially transfigured before the eyes of Peter, James, and John to see who, for who he really is. So we have his essential glory, his official glory, and then some theologians would point towards his moral glory, his moral glory. We understand this to be the fact that he's full of grace and truth. What marvelous glory we behold in that wondrous descent from heaven's throne to Bethlehem's manger. And yet while Jesus was fully God, who would become fully man, he never sinned. 1 Peter 2, 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. 1 John 3, 5, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. And so there's an aspect of the glory of Christ, of just the fact that while He was in a human nature, He did not have a sinful human nature, and He never sinned. And so the glory that we behold is just His perfection, His essential glory, His official glory, His moral glory, and then the last glory... That's mentioned is we beheld His acquired glory. His acquired glory. Concerning the acquired glories of our Lord, we cannot know at length, but we do know that these include the various rewards bestowed upon Him by the Father after the successful completion of the work that the Father had sent Him to do. For example, in Isaiah 53, we read about how it was the will of the Lord to crush His Son. But we also read at the end of that famous chapter that Christ was raised from the dead as we read how out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied and it's in Isaiah 53:12 that we read therefore I will divide him a portion with the many he shall divide the spoil with the strong and so what we're saying is God bestows special glory on Christ after the resurrection when he's able to divide the spoil with the strong. It's an example of acquired glory. Another example would be Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9, that while Jesus humbled himself and became a man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Acquired glory. After the resurrection, God then bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that we know that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. At the end of Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, we hear Jesus say, John 17:24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. So again, it's the glory that the Father gives to the Son. It's acquired glory. I appreciate what one commentator wrote on this to help us understand it a little more. Quote, We saw his glory as what was worthy, as became the only begotten Son of God. He did not glisten in any worldly pomp or grandeur, according to what the Jewish nation fondly dreamed their Messiah would do. But he was dressed with the glory of holiness, grace, truth, and the power of miracles. That's the glory of Christ. Have you seen His glory today? Have you beheld the glory of our Savior? Have you bowed the knee to Christ? Have you this day worshipped the risen Lamb? Have you a high priest in heaven who intercedes for you? Has the glory of Christ gripped your soul this morning? Have you seen God today, the Word becoming flesh, dwelling among us, beholding his glory and it's next week that we'll see how that glory is also the only the glory of the only son from the father the monogenesis the uniqueness of the glory of the son from the father full of grace and truth but for today a couple of take home questions for you number 1 which part of the incarnation helps you understand Jesus better today which part that we've talked about about him becoming flesh helps you understand Him a little better so that you can relate to Him in a beneficial way. You see, the Incarnation is not just about Christmas. It's not just about the cute baby. It's about the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the Incarnation is necessary for salvation. The Incarnation also benefits you today by seeing Christ as fully God and as fully man. You can relate to Jesus better by better understanding the Incarnation. Two natures in one second person of the Trinity. Number two, how does learning the way in which the tabernacle foreshadows Christ's presence help you worship Him? I mean, maybe you just want to take that middle part of the sermon and go home and just read through it again and think through the beauty of the tabernacle foreshadowing Christ and as excited as we sometimes get by studying Jewish culture and even the whole the tent of meeting, the tabernacle moving through the wilderness, it's just a shadow, right? It's just foreshadowing. How much more so ought we want to look at Christ who pitched his tent on earth for 33 years? Last, have you beheld his glory? Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you on this day seen the glory of God? Do you behold Christ for who he is? And have you bowed to him, be born again this day, so that you may see Christ, God, who became man and dwelt among us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the incredible passage that we've been in today, thinking lofty thoughts of our great God and King becoming man and dwelling among us. God, forgive us for not just camping out on this kind of rich theology, Christology, more often. God, it's good for our souls today to feast on the divinity of Christ and yet see the humanity of Christ at the same time so we could be encouraged by His example, so we could be transformed by His presence, so that we could be moved to worship at the center, at the hub of it all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for dwelling among us. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking somehow our burdens are too heavy to carry. Forgive us, God, for thinking somehow You don't understand what we're going through, but help us today to see the glory of Christ, to see the sympathy of Christ, to see that Christ, too, was a man who died and who sympathized and who gave us that perfect example. Encourage our hearts today to sing to Christ, to live for Christ, to relate to Christ, to be filled with Christ. Help us, God, to be amazed at the fact that you wanted to connect with us in the person of Jesus Christ. May that transform us, encourage us, and help us to walk closely with you this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.